0: Before this interview, I I told you that uh, I had yet to find my voice. It's very difficult to find a voice uh, to to speak about such a a, a past that one yeah. might have and uh, that I have. Uh, it's very difficult to uh, find a voice that uh, that comes yeah. across as as genuine. And yeah, I I guess I I would hope that. Uh, people would know that my expression and my uh, demonstration today was genuine more than anything.
1: Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
2: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear farther along until it reaches
1: its destination.
2: Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
1: Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. In response to the massacre last month in the Lee Correctional Institution in South Carolina, prisoners have called for a nationwide prison strike between August 21st and September 9th. Rather than accept prisoner-on-prisoner violence stoked and managed by the guards and administrators, prisoners are calling for a new round of collective struggle to improve their lives. This is part of their call. These are the national demands of the men and women in federal, immigration, and state prisons. 1. Immediate improvements of the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women. 2. An immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. 3. The Prison Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded, allowing imprisoned humans a proper channel to address grievances and violations of their rights. Four. The Truth in Sentencing Act and the Sentence Reform Act must be rescinded so that the imprisoned humans have a possibility of rehabilitation and parole. No human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any life sentence without the possibility of parole. Five, an immediate end to the racial overcharging, oversentencing, and parole denials of black and brown humans. Black humans shall no longer be denied parole because the victim of the crime was white, which is a particular problem in Southern states. Six, an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. 7. No imprisoned human shall be denied access to rehabilitation programs at their place of detention because of their label as a violent offender. 8. State prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. 9. Pell Grants must be reinstated in all U.S. states and territories. 10. The voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. We all agree to spread the strike throughout the prisons of America. From August 21st to September 9th, 2018, men and women in prisons across the nation will strike in the following manner. Work strikes. Prisoners will not report to assigned jobs. Each place of detention will determine how long its strike will last. Some of these strikes may translate into a local list of demands designed to improve conditions and reduce harm within the prison. Sit-ins. In certain prisons, men and women will engage in peaceful sit-in protests. Boycotts. All spending should be halted. We ask those outside the walls not to make financial judgments for those inside. Men and women on the inside will inform you if they are participating in this boycott. Hunger strikes. Men and women shall refuse to eat. In today's episode, we hear from Timothy Stewart Winter, an associate professor at Rutgers University with a background studying sexuality and incarceration. Stewart Winter wrote the book Queer Clout, Chicago and the Rise of Gay Politics. In this episode, they speak about the policing of sexuality and some of its consequences, beginning with the 1990s and the rise of the sex offender registries. Last week, we heard from Joe, who lives with the stigma of being on a sex offender registry after spending time inside. Now, we trace the laws that led to such an impact for the 900,000 people in the United States on state sex offender registries. We also hear about the case of the New Jersey Four, a group of queer women of color who were assaulted in New York City, and how their case was tried. Let's get started.
3: In the 1990s, as many people know, the federal government pushed on the state uh, a bunch of ways that they wanted the states to be harsher about crime, to hire new police officers, to mandate longer sentences for lots of different mm-hmm. kinds of crimes. And within this moment, one of the things the federal government does is say, we want the states to single out a population, at first is kind of labeled as sexually violent predators mm-hmm. for especially harsh treatment. The initial law is called the Jacob Wetterling Act, and that is part of the Federal Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. It's a Clinton-era act, and it goes along with three strikes. It leads to the rise of sex offender registries, which are created in all 50 states and which kind of grow from this initial federal mandate in lots of new directions. The states kind of experiment with different ways to expand the scene of punishment, if you will, from the prison to the outside world. And the result is it creates a class of people who, even after the release, and it's it's a very large number of people, it's close to a million people in the U.S., uh, almost 900,000, even after they are released, their rights are diminished. So it's a kind of intensification of the kind of marking and stigma that every former prisoner suffers. When you Google their name, the fact that they have been designated a sex offender pops up. That information is controlled by each of the states and the District of Columbia. The federal government requires that the states do this. Like incarceration in general, it hurts people's ability to get jobs, get apartments, Some significant, I think something like 25% of registered sex offenders are juvenile offenders,
2: and, you know, this
3: can last for decades.
2: You mean you can be convicted and get on the sex offender registry as a young person under 21, under 18?
3: That's correct, and you stay on it. The general idea is that you're on it for the rest of your life. I think it's very clear that, that it's a panic in the sense that it is not a kind of rational, effective response to the kinds of crime, shattering, disturbing crimes, to be sure, that the laws were written in response to. Many of these laws were given the name of a particular offender, right? So so the Jacob Wetterling Act leads to what Megan's Law, which is actually not one law, but it's sort of a a model of what's called community notification. Mm -hmm. These laws are results from public outrage over particular kinds of crime victims, white Mm -hmm. children murdered Mm -hmm. by a stranger. Megan Polly Cloth, wow, it was a big one, Adam Walsh. You know, these cases get passed out of a sense of societal outrage and that something should be done uh, mm-hmm. about these unsolvable or, or even if not unsolvable, um, you know, crimes that, that people feel really terrible about. But certain kinds of victims uh, are perceived as kind of super innocent. The response to that, the legislative response is let's lock up more people. Let's lock them up for longer. And let's kind of blur together people who are a threat to others uh, mm-hmm. and people who may not be, a, a punitive turn toward any kind of offense that, that has a sexual
2: component. So uh, are you suggesting that it isn't just the kind of sexually violent predators that a Megan's Law, an Amber Alert, a PolySat bring to mind who are targeted by these sexually violent predator laws? Are you suggesting that it's actually other people as well who are caught up in the net?
3: Absolutely. Um, Once the state has these laws on the book, they are used in order to secure longer sentences and harsher punishments for other people. Um, They are disproportionately used against, like criminal law, generally against people of color, particularly African-American men. We also know that uh, that these Mm -hmm. laws are used against queer women, especially black and brown queer women women who defy sort of societal norms about womanhood, women who may be agey or aggressive.
2: I mean, at least do these laws protect the people they were intended to protect?
3: So that's the outrageous thing, is that there really is not a lot of evidence that they do what they're supposed to do, and they actually have some kind of perverse effect, especially Mm -hmm. in the case of Megan's Law, the community notification piece. There's good evidence that there's a kind of boomerang effect where it actually discourages people from reporting domestic violence because people are afraid of triggering community notification uh, against people in their own family.
2: Right, These
3: laws right. propagate a kind of a vision what sex crimes look like. Um, there are crimes against children committed by strangers and that, that's mm-hmm. the sort of archetypal threat and communities right are supposed to be protected by the police um, from these external sources of danger, um, and it distracts from the real source of harm that's most common, which is within the family. It also demonizes people who live in communities where kids do face real violence, whether it's lead in the water,
2: Mm -hmm. crappy schools, uh, or police violence, right? So we have this vision that the police are protecting Children, thanks to these laws, but in fact, more children are at risk from police than protected by them, at least in, in this understanding of the panic around sexuality.
3: I think that's right. I think it creates a vision of protection that kind of masks criminalization of, Mm -hmm. uh, of certain, you know, the, the question of who is being protected and who is being criminalized is the question that I think we have to ask and analyzing mm-hmm. how these laws have played out.
2: And because a lot of these laws also criminalize things that we might not understand as being caught up in the net, like That's indecent right. exposure, public urination, consensual sex between adults in public, for example, or... Consensual
3: sex between teenagers who may fall on either side
2: of age, okay, age divide. So a great number of people within that nearly a million people on these registries are not rapists. They are actually maybe right. people having sex lives that are fully consensual or people who and are forced to use the bathroom in public.
3: Totally. And it's important to recognize that the whole idea of these lists is mm-hmm. to blur the distinction, right? To create mm-hmm. one class of people who, who are dangerous and not to kind of recognize the shades of gray.
2: Well, so so tell us then about um, the case of the New Jersey Four, originally the New Jersey Seven.
3: Sure. This is a case of seven women. Three of them got plea agreements. Um, So uh, it became four women who went on trial, young African-American women from Newark, New Jersey, where I work, who were the subject of a fantastic documentary. It's called Out in the Night made by Blair Burrow Walter. The case began in 2006 when these four women were out with their Mm friends in Greenwich Village, so in New York City, in a gay-friendly part of the city on a busy street. These women were assaulted by a man who targeted them as lesbians and threatened them with rape. He said to one of the women, I'll f**k you straight, sweetheart.
2: really very clear that it's about their sexuality and that it's a threat of rape.
3: Targeted against these kind of bitch black women. Um, Renata Hill, Patrice Johnson, Denise Brown, and Terrain Dandridge get into a fight with him. This is all caught on video. The video shows that he initiated the fight. One of the women had a knife on her, pulled it, and he was cut. None of these women have prior records. Everybody walks away from the fight. And they're witnesses. What happens is when the police are called, they're looking for a a gang of killer lesbians.
2: So all of a sudden, this group of friends out for a night on the town has become a gang.
3: Exactly. And they're arrested. Their criminal charges are given gang enhancements, which are mm-hmm. tools that prosecutors have been given um, mm-hmm. as part of the kind of war on drugs to right. go after numbers of violent gangs. It's
2: about the convergence. Of laws intended to prevent gang formations and violence and laws intended to protect people from sexual predators coming together to criminalize a group of people who were doing nothing wrong, who were themselves the victims of an attack. Mm-hmm.
3: That's right, who were defending itself. These women face charges on top of charges. The prosecutors represent them as demonic killer lesbians, right? And this is New York City. This is is New York City in the 2000s. The New York tabloids in particular, the coverage is really disgusting. The jury is all white, you know, and the prosecutors are really out of control. I mean, this goes on national news.
2: Why, in your opinion, was there such national fascination with this case?
3: It plays into people's kind of racist fantasies about Black people. I think it also, you know, the the fact that it's these killer women, killer Mm lesbians, yeah, has a kind of intrinsically titillating quality for
2: people. So how does this case, the case of the New Jersey Four, reflect the history of race, gender, and prison? In our country.
3: Well, I just want to say before we get to that, we, these women are completely railroaded. They get long oh, right. prison terms yeah. mm-hmm. um, because of this intersection. They are all out now. Mm-hmm. Their lives are radically disrupted. Their kids' lives yeah. are disrupted. And they become activists as a result. So they are now working to educate the public about the ways that mass incarceration especially targets queer women of color.
2: How does the case of the New Jersey Four reflect the history of race, gender, and prisons in this country?
3: I think it's a story about the way that this era of mass incarceration has produced a legal system that subjects women of color, especially queer women of color, to particular intersecting kinds of danger. And, and the police are very much part of that that mm-hmm. danger, along with the child custody system, you know, mm-hmm. the prison system. This case points to the violence of a legal system that is still heteropatriarchal. And mm. what do I mean by heteropatriarchal? I mean that women who are seen as out of their place or out of order mm-hmm. are treated extra harshly.
1: And in this mm-hmm. case,
3: especially, women who fight back against aggressors, who ostensibly we as a society tell ourselves, you know, that protecting women and children, innocent women and children is the purpose or part of the purpose of criminal law. And yet it's a question of who is protected and who is actually being further criminalized by mm-hmm. harsh policing and punishment. So I think there's, there's historical continuity in the legal system viewing African-American women as aggressive, in some ways, the New Jersey Four face some of the same kinds of stigma that black men face in the legal system. Layered on top of that is the demonization they face as lesbians, as gender nonconforming women. There's also a longer history of women who fight back against rapists or against violent intimate partners who are demonized by the state.
2: What is this particular activism in Newark, say, or nationally, the activism led by African American women against the violence of mass criminalization, advocating?
3: I think it is advocating for attention to the intersections between the criminal legal system and race and gender and sexuality. And certainly, in the case of the New Jersey Four, I should I should add, you know, they are they are advocating for reform that will protect women who are fighting back against assault or against rape from being kind of demonized um, and to call attention to the ways in which that happens you know every day in lower profile cases they're also fighting against people being locked up for too long the gang enhancements that we used against them i find their story very inspiring in the ways that they've been able to kind of take something horrible that's Happen to them and turn it into a source of strength and to mobilize and inspire others. What this story tells us is there's much more to who is getting protected and who is getting criminalized than what is written in the statute. Laws that are often passed in haste and in response to panic turn out to have effects that weren't intended and that fall very unevenly on folks. Right on. Right. Um,
2: they always fall more on people of color, working people, and queers of all sorts.
1: We now end with the last part of a conversation between Nicole and Joe. Joe was the center of last week's episode, where he talked about his experiences living his life after doing time for a sex offender conviction. Here they are.
0: Hi. Mm-hmm. You know, if I could find just one word to tell you how most of this is, it's, it's mm-hmm. just... It's like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill and getting it mm. to the top of the hill and it rolling back down and then having to do it the next day over. You know, mm. it's just, it's just every day when I wake up, okay, I'm going to have to do this again. I have to do this dance again. And, 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 and that most people do feel that I'm deserving of what I'm, I'm experiencing. Uh, you deserve this. Uh, this is what you did and you're going to pay for it for the rest of your life. Just like that person paid for what you did they're going to be in pain for the rest of their life, which you did. So you should be in pain for the rest of your life, which you did, too.
2: The sex offender registries have no effect on diminishing sexual assault because they fail to apply to the great majority of people who inflict sexual violence who are family members of the people that they abuse because those cases very, very rarely come to trial. That's true.
0: One of the things that that bothers me most about um, having this offense is that I can never apologize to the victim of my crime. I can have no contact. I can have no contact. If she were to initiate a restorative justice type of uh, scenario, it could happen, but it has to be initiated by her, and if she does not, so I can never, ever say sorry. And and part of uh, being in recovery the 12-step program is making amends for past wrongs, Mm -hmm. and it's one amends that I can never make, so what we call a living amends is that I live in a way today that I would never Mm -hmm. make another victim, and I would never do anything like I did again.
2: What would you say to this person, to this woman, if you did have a chance to talk to her?
0: You know, I, I don't even know, because what what I would have to do first is listen to her about mm-hmm. what my harm has done to her. I, I, I of course, would want to apologize and, and tell her how much regret and how sorry I am, and how I regret having ever done what I did. But I, what specifics I would say, I, you know, I, I just couldn't say. I was once told that when you're making amends to someone, you should ask mm-hmm. them, "Is there anything that my actions?" cause to you that I don't know about, I'm sure that there are things that happen and that continue to happen to her that I don't know about, mm-hmm. and, and and I think it would be my first job is to just, you know, shut up and listen, you know, not to you know, so be listening... willing to be heard, but to listen. Mm-hmm. Just
2: listening to you talk like that. Uh... It provokes such a mix of emotions in me because, of course, I have my own share of experiences. And um, nobody has ever tried to apologize to me. And there's at least one case in which I, I wish that somebody would. And it makes me angry that they never have. And I I want to try to take your apology, Joe, and... And claim it for myself. I'm going to pretend that the person that I wish apologized to me just did.
0: That is my hope, because I can never do it in 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 in, in actuality. It's 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 almost just symbolic that I can mm-hmm. I can only offer a symbolic apology because I can't offer an actual one, and that's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it doesn't bring uh, closure. Right. For anyone involved, it doesn't bring closure to anyone involved, and, and I, wish mm-hmm. I wish there could be. I wish it could be. The the most important thing in any harm that's been done is, is that the the person harm is made whole. And I know that I myself have been a victim of a crime before. I've been assaulted, or I've been I've had been stolen from me, and I would wish that someone would apologize, and I've never been able to have that happen. Because of the same reasons, because of the systems that are in place within our criminal justice system that says you cannot have contact with your victim or the the victim, they cannot have contact There's a a stay-away order and, and you know, kind of a gag order where there's no contact between the two. It just doesn't make the other party whole.
2: It doesn't allow for any building of community because it assumes that isolation is necessary. Isolation is synonymous with protection, I guess. But that's not the kind of world that I want to live in.
0: That's the only one we've got right now, uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and we have mm-hmm. to find a way to negotiate that ourselves within a world where there is so much isolation. And you know, as a, as a as a convicted sex offender, the 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 isolation that one feels, that I feel on a daily mm-hmm. basis, is is palpable. It's just it's 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 like my heart beating, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and pounding almost constantly. Like I said earlier, walking down the street and believing that people can tell that I'm a sex offender. And obviously, mm-hmm. just looking at me, you would not think that. In That's fact, true. I was I was I was speaking with a, a dear friend of mine uh, who is a, a feminist, actually, and I and I <laughs> kind of tried to I kind of tried to mull over some of this with her, and she's mm-hmm. also a, a, a retired child psychologist and. We mm-hmm. had many deep conversations about this and mm-hmm. and when we were leaving the uh cafe that we were in and we were talking about you know me doing this interview today and uh-huh. you know, some of the things that I was trying to wrap my head around because I, I you know, I, I I don't want to come across as someone who rationalizes what he did and who, right. a person who's truly sorry for what he did. You know, when we were walking out of the cafe and when we had finished, uh-huh. a woman that was ahead of us walking out the door turned and smiled to me and she said did you see that that woman just smiled at you? And you know, uh, it's it, you know that 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 kind of feeling that people are frowning at me or looking at me with a disdain or, or horror, you know, mm-hmm. is, is is present even when it's not true. It's not it's not something that happens to me on a, on a just generally, but I feel that way. Well, you know, most people see sex offenders as monsters. Right. And I would hope that people could not prejudge, because mm-hmm. I would like to believe, and I do believe, that people can change, mm-hmm. and people there is a, a component or, or or a reality of redemption for everyone. Everyone should have a, a an opportunity for redemption, and uh, I would hope that uh, people would see that even sex offenders uh, have some redeemable qualities, that there is something redeemable in a person who has been convicted of a sex offense. One of the things about discussing uh, crime and punishment in general is there's always going to be, I think, uh, 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 a view or a position of either a person who has been harmed or a person who has committed great harm that people forget, or like to uh, discuss. The thing that I most want to impress upon anyone who might hear this is that, again, I said I am responsible for what I did. I've taken full accountability and responsibility for what I've done. To try to add or take anything away from this interview might seem very self-serving to me, and, and and I don't want that to be before this interview i i told you that uh, I had yet to find my voice
2: yeah
0: it's very difficult to find a voice uh to to speak about such a uh, a, a past that one yeah. might have and uh that i have uh it's very difficult to uh find a voice that uh that comes to yeah. as as genuine and yeah i i guess i i would hope that uh, people would know that my expression and my uh, demonstration today was genuine, more than anything. Even with uh, its problems and, 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 and even with all of the problems involved.
1: This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at KiteLineRadio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.